Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 2 on Original Sin. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Dustin Beck. He is pastor of Holy Cross in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you so much, Pastor Smith. Good to be with you. Yes, and it's great to have you here. You've been on our panel discussions before, but now as we kind of have a solo teacher and so forth, good to have you on for everybody's favorite topic, right? Which is sin. Yeah, I know. I feel like I really, uh, I struck the gold mine here. I get to talk about all the, all the bad news, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I was even just recently uh, going through with my confirmation students, you know, we were talking about sin and so forth. And I asked them, I said, you know, why is it that people get offended, even sometimes within the church, when we talk about sin, when we point that out? And we were exploring that and basically, even my confirmation students recognize it's because we often don't understand or really want to think about sin, and we only think of it as something offensive. And so I think this is a very important article to get into. And so we're pleased to have you on and kind of give us our teaching of especially original sin, which I think we don't often think in those terms. We just think of broad sin, maybe uh, as we'll get into things we see and so forth. But that original sin, this is a key teaching here. So before we jump into the article, Pastor Beck, go ahead and give us, set the context for us of where we've been in the Augsburg Confession and how we come to this article then. Sure thing. Yeah. So one of the things that I just really appreciate about the way that the Augsburg Confession is written is that it actually strikes two different tones. You'll, you'll remember, and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, remember the, um, the Martin Luther movie that came out probably two decades ago by now, right? And that movie that came out, you remember the big highlight of the movie, kind of the climax of the movie. It's all the way at the end when Luther finds out that they have heard our confession. Well, of course, that's talking about the Augsburg Confession, but you remember that they presented this to the Holy Roman Emperor, presented this to Charles, and it strikes this duality of tone, right? So on the one hand, if you read the Augsburg Confession, at least a bulk majority of it, there is this sort of conciliatory tone that says, listen, we're only teaching what has always been taught in the church. You know, you guys are the ones that have kind of veered off the path, you Roman Catholics, right? And then at the same time, if you actually do a closer reading of it, you see not just the conciliatory, like let's get along, we're, we're just teaching the truth of the gospel, but also a little bit of a polemical tone, which sort of comes back and says, now, you guys really are off the reservation here. The Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages and the scholasticism and everything else that's kind of crept in 
all of this has pulled you guys away from the true teaching of the Bible. And so I think as we go through, and, and admittedly, we're very early in the Augustana right now. We've had the first article that deals with God, which is such a wonderful place to start, right? We start with who God is the same way. And I didn't talk with you about this before we went on the air, but when I do new members classes, I actually do kind of a pared down version of the Augustana. Like that's where we start is we start with God and then we move on to where we are today. We move on to the second article. We move on to where we are, right? So there's God and then there's us the ones that are not like God, specifically on account of our sin, right? The third article and the fourth article, it's going to get into Jesus, kind of the bridge between God and man, and then what his job is, what his work is, that he would bring about justification, right? That he would save us. And then after that, we get a handful of articles that deal with just exactly how he has done that, namely through the office of the ministry, through the sacraments, through the gospel, et cetera, so on. But this second article is crucial for us to understand what comes next. If you don't understand how bad the problem is, you won't appreciate how gloriously beautiful the solution is. So I think that that maybe sets the tone a little bit. That gives us a backdrop against which we can kind of look and consider this article on original sin. Uh, was that kind of what you had in mind, sir? Absolutely. Good. And with that, I think, is it fair then to go ahead and just jump right into reading it here and then we'll discuss what it teaches us. Yes, sir. Let's let her rip. Okay. So once again, a reminder that on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord available from Concordia Publishing House, which is the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 2 from the Augsburg Confession on Original Sin. Our churches teach that since the fall of Adam, citing Romans chapter 5, verse 12, all who are naturally born are born with sin, citing Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. That is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin called concupiscence. Concupiscence is a disease and original vice that is truly sin. It damns and brings eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit, citing John chapter 3, verse 5. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. All right, Pastor Beck, thus far the Augsburg Confession, Article 2, actually in its entirety, thankfully in the Augsburg Confession, we have much more very compact articles here for the most part but a lot to talk about in here. Do you want to go ahead and give us a broad overview of what's talked about here, and then we'll get into some of the details and things that it cites and what's going on there? Yeah, so at its heart, what's going on in Augustana 2 is the fact that we think in terms of righteousness and sin, not like a dimmer switch, but sort of like an on-off switch, right? You're either righteous or you're not, and there's not really an in-between. Okay. And so this article asserts, obviously with plenty of scriptural backing here, it asserts that in our natural condition, when we are born, when we are infants, that we are born without original righteousness. That that is something that Adam and Eve were created in possession of, but after the fall into sin, everything has been broken. Everything has been, well, not according to God's plan 
everything has been outside of that original righteousness, which, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that's going to be the reason why Jesus is so vitally important for the church. That's the reason that Jesus comes into the world, that he takes on flesh, that he dies on the cross. All of that is because of just how big a problem this sin stuff is. And I know that that's not a palatable thing to talk about in a lot of churches nowadays. I know there are a lot of people that, you know, they say, well, uh, how is that fair? How is it fair that people are born sinners? How is it fair that people are born with, you know, red in their ledger already? But that's the way that the Bible talks. That's the way that Scripture confesses it. And that's the way that the church has always taught it, with very few exceptions. You mentioned it in there that there's plenty of scriptural backing cited here. And I certainly tried to read that as I read the articles where these various statements that they're making are cited. I want to get into at least a few of those here because it's always important. We always like to make the point on this show that our Christian confession as Lutherans is grounded in the scriptures. And so as it gets right into right away there, let's go ahead and talk about Romans 5.12 that's cited there. So what does that verse teach us about the connection between human life and sin as it talks about from the fall of Adam there? Yeah, sure. So Romans 5 verse 12 says, and I'll be reading from the ESV, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So it kind of leaves off right there. But Romans 5 is this chapter where, remember, we're moving in the progression of Romans from Romans 1, 2, and the first part of 3 that deal with mankind's sin, with the brokenness of sin and everything else. Romans, the last half of 3 and then into 4, talks about the promise that God gives, the righteousness that that God is the one who justifies, right? He remains just, but he's also the one who justifies, just as he justified Abraham by faith. And then in Romans 5, we have this section that kind of almost looks back over the shoulder to see that just as sin came into the world through this one man, and through that one man, sin came to all people, and with sin comes death, right? But then how great is the gift that comes through Jesus Christ? So that's the trajectory of where Romans 5 is. But it's important for us, and it's going to be important in all of these scripture passages that are in front of us, to understand that these are not just throwaway phrases. Uh, I've spoken with individuals before who have kind of said that maybe this is just Paul sort of waxing eloquently. Maybe this is Paul just talking about how, you know, everybody is bound to sin eventually, right? Everyone's going to sin. And so that's the death that comes as a result of it. Paul's pretty clear in this Romans 5 text that when sin came into the world through the one man, death came through that sin, right? You don't die just for your sins, but you die for the sake of sin. Sin is what kills you, right? And the fact that we participate, that we receive that original sin, uh, that sin from our origin, from our originator, all the way back from Adam, our first father, that sin is like a disease, that is passed on. It's like something that's like being born with the terrible terminal disease. That's the way that the uh, reformers thought of sin. And I think that looking at Romans 5, I think that's an appropriate way to understand it. And wherever sin is, there also is death. So we got to just keep those two things together, that when we're talking about sinners, we're talking about people who are susceptible to death. And, you know, in a very, very unfortunate perspective, this comes up a lot of times when, uh, you know, as a pastor, when we meet with prospective parents, people who are, you know, with child and everything like that, and they 
why are we bringing this child to be baptized? Well, because we only baptize sinners because children, even babies, even infants are in need of baptism because they are sinners. And one of the proofs for that, one of the ways that we can look and we can actually experience this is that in very sad situations, sometimes babies die, right? And only sinners die. That's part of the fall of Adam. That's part of being in the lineage of Adam is that we carry also that curse that is sin, which leads to death. You mentioned that this comes up, you know, with infant baptism as we practice, as the church has always practiced. And that flows nicely into the next line that we see here. All who are naturally born are born with sin. And you've set that up really well for us in the citation of Romans 5.12, but then it gives another citation there, Psalm 51, verse 5. And once again, this is one of those places where in our pastoral ministry, we sometimes encounter that, especially around baptisms. You know, we look at babies and we think, oh, they're so sweet and they're so innocent. And I think you even mentioned before, you know, how is it fair that this comes in even in an infant? And so it cites Psalm 51, verse 5 there. And I've actually cited that to people, especially once again with babies and at baptism and so forth. And people are kind of troubled that I'm calling this beautiful little child or grandchild of theirs a sinner. And they're kind of offended by that. And they say, oh, well, you know, that was just David writing the psalm or whatever. I mean, so let's get into this verse here, because I think this is an important citation for us. Does this apply to everyone? And then once again, same question. How does that relate to the connection between our human life and sin? Yeah, so really, really good question. And a, and a great point that needs to be made is that Psalm 51 verse 5 is not just David speaking in terms of hyperbole, right? Um, I actually uh, was re- approached with this point by someone um, several years ago. I think it was actually probably while we, we were still in college together, Pastor Smith, but somebody had brought up the point and they said that Psalm 51 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's just because David is so torn up over, you know, losing the child that he fathered with Bathsheba. You know, this is after Nathan has approached him about his sin and everything else. This is just David kind of saying, you know, oh, I'm the worst sinner ever, but he doesn't really mean it. Uh, And the way that this individual that I was talking with put it, they said, that would be like if I told you, I've always loved jazz. Well, did I love jazz when I was a two-day-old infant, or am I just speaking in hyperbole? Now, I think that the way that we understand this, it's really going to inform, or it's really going to uh, reflect the way that we read Scripture. Do we read, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, as David just being really torn up? Or do we view this verse, uh, along with the rest of Scripture, as a statement of theological conviction written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because I, and I I believe you as well, would suggest, I'd submit that this is the way that we read Scripture. This This is God's Word. This is not just David, you know, saying, oh my goodness, I'm just the worst person there is. I feel so bad. I must have been born a sinner. That's not David exaggerating. That's the simple fact, is that people are born sinful. And then they sin as they are. So we don't, it's not that we are sinners because we sin. It's that we sin because we are sinners. So a distinction that often gets made, and I know we make this a lot of times in, uh, in catechism class and everything else, is the distinction between original sin and actual sin, right? But the original sin, the sin that is from our origin, that is actually kind of baked right in as we you know, emerge from our mother's wombs, that sin is the reason that everything else 
falls apart. That's the reason, the rationale behind the actual sin that will be committed as we move on about in our lives. And the next part of the uh, article gets into that. But any other thoughts on Psalm 51? Had you ever heard that before as just a hyperbole? Yeah, absolutely. And I that's what I was kind of throwing there in, in terms of the setup to you. And yeah, you're right. We did go to college together. I must have been in a different <laughs> class or something. I, I don't remember uh, that ever coming up at college. Um, it was interesting for me that kind of the first time I ever encountered that notion was as a pastor. And I had someone that was kind of offended that I talked about in my sermon connected with a baptism. They were pretty offended that I would talk about this, you know, beautiful little baby that they love so much as a sinner. And I said, well, that's what scripture teaches us, right? And I cited Psalm 51 and it set up a nice teaching opportunity. So I'm not speaking negatively against this person, but they legitimately had this understanding that David was just speaking either about himself or kind of in hyperbole, as you say, and that that didn't necessarily apply to everyone. And so it set up a great opportunity to really, as you've done here for us already, kind of walk through, well, what does scripture teach about this connection to our nature? And I think that does set up then in exactly what comes next, because once again, especially as we think about kind of what I tend to call on this show and in my pastoral ministry, broadly, American evangelicalism, which has a lot of, you know, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal kind of roots and theology working behind it and so forth. But we see this very present in our culture and broad Christian culture around us that kind of thinks about babies is that these babies are kind of innocent and that it's like they learn to sin later and they learn all of these other things that are the products of sin later. And so this is, once again, a very difficult statement that follows is that teaching that, no, this is connected to our nature. This is our original sin, as the title of the article talks about. And it spells out that we're naturally born with sin and without the fear of God, or it actually says not and, that is. It's describing sin here without the fear of God, without the trust in God. Well, once again, especially with the idea of what comes around us in our culture, that can be a difficult one. So go ahead and give us some understanding there, Pastor Beck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to just comment also one other thing that was uh, while you were talking about the experience that you had had with a parishioner, I just wanted to kind of throw in also another way that's maybe helpful for our folks uh, who are listening to think about this is when we're using the term or the, the category of sinner, we're not necessarily saying you did a wrong thing. Another way of thinking about a sinner is somebody who needs Jesus, right? Isn't that, doesn't that soften the blow a little bit? And so this baby that's been brought forward to be baptized, we're not necessarily saying that that baby, even though we probably could make the argument that this child is inwardly turned upon themselves, that this child only cares for themselves, you know, and everything else and has no regard for their neighbor or, or faith towards God. But maybe the nicer way to put it, and this is, I've used this a handful of times, is to say that that baby needs Jesus and only sinners need Jesus. If you don't need Jesus, you're not a sinner. And if you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. So I, yeah, I, I don't know if that resonates or not, but that's another kind of aspect to that for our listeners at home. If you're still struggling with this and still saying, well, how can that cute little innocent thing be a sinner? Uh, well, does he or she need Jesus? If so, why do they need Jesus? Well, because one day they're going to sin. No, because right now they are in the snares of the devil. Right now they are the property of this world. And that's why it's so beautiful 
when God claims us as his own, when he places his name upon us and names us his children in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, so that's kind of where we're eventually heading in the Augustana. But right now we have this threefold definition in front of us. And I, I like the way that it's laid out for us. Uh, so we've gone through those who are naturally born with sin, right? And obviously, the exception to that, the one who is not naturally born, of course, is Jesus, right? Jesus is not born in the natural fashion. And that's why in the third article, we'll get to talk about Jesus as sort of the, I mean, he fits neatly into the God category, but he's also somewhere kind of in between because he's truly man, but not with the marker of original sin that we would claim as, you know, that's our category. That's who we are. So Jesus is the one who is not born naturally, but instead born supernaturally, born of the Holy Spirit or begotten rather. And then we get into this definition, right? So it says that is three things without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin called concupiscence, which is a fun concept. And we'll get to talk about that after a bit, I'm sure. So without fear of God, without trust in God, that is the important definitional point that we're going to make is that sin, original sin, the sin that of our origin with which we are born, that means that we are born not believing in God. That's, that's it. That's the whole thing, right? Which is why you can see that another line or so later, it says that this damns and it brings eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism. Because without fear and without trust, um, you don't have that right relationship towards God. You are not in the place where you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, which of course is the basis of salvation. And so to be apart from that, to be born apart from that, well, I think that this is a helpful definition because again, it doesn't seed it in the fact that, you know, this baby has done something wrong. Instead, it says this child is born at enmity with God and not in a right standing in God's presence. Does that kind of make sense? Did I explain that too well or did I talk too quick? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think and what you stated there is a really excellent point that this is a child who needs Jesus, right? And especially as we think about here, I think what you're highlighting really well for us is related to the very topic of this article, which is on original sin. It's kind of what we've alluded to a few times here is that this proper understanding and definition of sin is what we really need, especially in terms of understanding original sin that is in all of us. And that's going to manifest itself in specific things that we do wrong. And that's certainly going to be brought up in one of the later articles, especially Article 19. And so we're going to see some relation of some of the other articles that are to come, and we'll cover those in more detail then. But as we're talking here about original sin, and I think the point that you made, especially for me, as I said, you know, as I began encountering this in my pastoral ministry, and it sets up this opportunity to walk through the scriptures and provide this teaching that we do have about sin and about original sin, one of the ones that I like to always get to in that is 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, which supports that point that you made, right? This is a trustworthy saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Exactly. Once again, we can take that as hyperbole in terms of St. Paul just saying, well, he's the worst sinner, but I don't think it's that way. I think all of us according to our original sin, are the worst sinners. And we're not necessarily talking about specific things, though it's going to manifest in that way that we have done wrong, but that this is in our very nature. But guess what? 
Jesus came into the world for sinners. So that means Jesus is for you. So take comfort and hope in that. Yeah. And, you know, the beautiful thing also is that according to Jesus coming into the world to bear our sin and to be our savior from sin, he actually takes that mantle onto himself as the worst sinner, right? So, yeah, I think Paul's absolutely right, obviously, when he says that he's the chief of sinners. I think that I would probably, you know, arm wrestle Paul for that title because I've seen myself in the mirror and I know myself. I think that's why Paul is able to say that about himself is because he knows himself. He's acutely aware of who he is. But then again, yes, so that we can have a, a program talking about original sin that also has droplets of gospel sprinkled throughout. Yes, Jesus in his incarnation and especially in his inauguration through the waters of the Jordan River and, and when he's baptized, he does bear our sins. He takes all of those sins uh, and he takes them straight to the cross. So there we, we made our way to Good Friday on this program, even though we're talking about our own original sin. I think that's the goal of every Lutheran pastor, no matter what we're talking about. Isn't that right? I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And well done to give us that progression. Well, I don't know about well done, but yeah. So we move from without the fear of God, without trust in God, which is, again, this is so, so central because this is what's so beautiful about the Reformation is this rediscovery of the idea that what it's really all about here is not climbing the ladder. It's not about working the sacramental system that the Roman Catholics had in the 16th century, where we move from, you know, from baptism to last rites and everything else. And as long as you climb the rungs, as long as you do what you're supposed to do and work the system, you're going to be just fine in a couple of thousand years or however long purgatory takes or whatever, right? But instead, they focus it in on this fear of God and trust in God. Because that's what justifies. That's what brings us into that place where God is our Father and Jesus is our Savior. And we are born, like I said at the onset of the program, right? The fact that sin and righteousness, it's more like a, like a light switch than it is like a dimmer switch. There's not an in-between. It's not like you're born kind of half on, half off, or you're born with a, a blank slate. That's what you know a lot of people think when it comes to children. Uh, well, they're born with a blank slate, and eventually, unfortunately, we'll teach them to sin. Uh, but instead, we are actually born hating God. We're born at enmity with God. We're born in rebellion against him. And that's what the third part of this definition picks up. So we've got without fear of God, without trust in God, but now we have with the inclination to sin. So we're without two things that are vitally important for our eternity, and we're born with something that's actually going to kind of drag us down, and that's concupiscence, which is a really fun thing to say and even more fun to type. I think I got autocorrected on that, which I was pleased that autocorrect actually knew concupiscence, uh, though I don't know that the, uh, the smart devices that we use actually understand what concupiscence is. So are you ready to jump into some concupiscence talk? Well, actually, we're going to go ahead and take a break here Perfect. at this point. And so we will pick up the discussion of this inclination to sin called concupiscence and what that means so that we can have an understanding about it, even if our smart devices autocorrect and try to think that we're thinking about talking about something else. Uh, this is always the challenge of us pastors, right? We write our sermons <laughs> well, and Bible is. studies, and, and it just it doesn't understand our religious conversational language, right? So uh, we'll get into that on the other side of the break with our guest today, Pastor Dustin Beck. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUR.
the word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Dustin Beck. And Pastor Beck, as we were setting up just before we took our break there, we have this progression going on in Article 2 on Original Sin from the Augsburg Confession as we're continuing our series here on the Augsburg Confession. And we've been setting up what it's been talking about here. We have this as a part of our nature. It's We're all naturally born with sin, and then it begins to describe that by saying that is without the fear of God, without trusting God. We talked about that in the first segment, but then we left off right there where it says, and with the inclination to sin. And I believe at one point in the first segment, you said something about, we have this idea that, you know, it's it's not fair that we would be born into sin here and so forth. And we can kind of see that with the inclination to sin And then it calls it, gives us this fancy term that our devices never understand what we're talking about. And most people probably don't understand what we're talking about. So it's important to get a definition here. It says called concupiscence. So with the inclination to sin called concupiscence, what's that all about here? What's going on here? Right. So concupiscence, it's a theological kind of 50 cent word. You know, those are few and far between. You get to throw this around a cocktail party and sound like you know what you're talking about. But concupiscence is being pointed in the direction of sin. And that's the way that we are actually born. And a way to think about this, Luther talked about uh, how our wills are bound. I love when a word has sort of multiple meanings, right? And one of the ways that I think of this is, you know, Luther talked about how our wills are bound, right? The bondage of the will and everything like that. And when we are bound to sin, On the one hand, we could talk about being bound to sin in the way that we would think about being, you know, having sin binded. I know that's not correct English, but actually having it stuck to us. It it sticks to us like, you know, when you walk through the mud and it's, you know, you you track it into the house and, and, and your wife gets upset with you. I know mine does, right? But the other way is actually the way that my grandparents would have used the word bound and they would have said, well, it's bound to happen. Does that kind of make sense, right? It's bound to happen. And so when we say that we're bound to sin, on the one hand, we are saying that sin has stuck to us according to our nature, our fallen nature that we inherited from our parents, but also that we are bound to sin, as in we're, as we say down here in the South, fixing to sin, or we're in that general direction, right? And so we're almost kind of, I was thinking about the best analogies for this. I know I know you and I were both in band in high school. You played trumpet, right, I believe? Uh, I was a saxophone guy. But when you were in marching band, did you ever start off on the wrong foot? Absolutely, right? yeah. Yeah, and when you start off on the wrong foot, I mean, you, when I watch, you know, the Macy's Day Parade and things like that now, I chuckle as I watch you know, the folks that are out of step trying to get back into step. And it's really tough because once you've committed to something, there's this kind of skip move that you do and everything like that. Well, imagine that, but in terms of sin, and it's a lot worse. Okay. So it's not just the minor thing of, well, I'm putting down my left foot when everybody else is putting down their right foot. Um, Like I said earlier, it's almost like being oriented in the absolute wrong direction. 
Okay. So if we were, as Adam and Eve were created with the fear of God and with trust in God, well, then they didn't have that inclination towards sin. Their inclination was to continue in the way that God had created them, right? To continue eating of every tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? But then when Genesis 3 takes place, when everything gets kind of knocked out of orbit, when everything gets broken beyond, uh, at least beyond our own ability to repair, then we get concupiscence. We get this misorientation, this about face where all of a sudden we are pointed in the wrong direction from the start. And that is to say we are without the fear of God, without trusting God, and we are bound to sin. It's clinging to us, and we're also right on the verge of sinning even when we're born. And I think that that is a helpful definition for us to move forward with, to understand that this is a disease. And then as they end this sentence, concupiscence is a disease and it is an original vice that is, and then this is the clincher, it is truly sin. Okay? So it's not like it's some kind of, well, okay, we start out not in a great place, but we don't actually call that sin, right? It's not like you actually did anything wrong. You were just, you know, you, you had the misfortune of being born this side of Eden, right? If you would have been born the other side of Eden, everything would have been just hunky-dory and you would have been, no, I mean, there, we can't even fathom that. We can't even wrap our heads around that because that's how big the fall into sin was. And so this is all linked up with Adam and Eve's first sin. That is the origin of sin. And that sin has been inherited through our parents all the way down to us today. You mentioned their uh, interesting thought. I've never worked that into my own teaching about being in band and so forth, and especially marching band. You talked about being out of step and what you have to do, that little skip move to get back in step. M maybe easier for you as a saxophone player, <laughs> but uh, when you're a trumpet player and you've got this little mouthpiece sitting on top of your lips, it's really hard to get back in step right? Uh, because doing a skip move, that trumpet the mouthpiece is going to bounce off of you and everything. And uh, and so as you were giving that analogy, you know, as a trumpet player, I was thinking about that particular challenge that would be for me. And that led me to thinking about, well, what really needs then is I need some help in getting back into step, especially when it comes to sin, because it's such a challenge to do. Right. And I think that leads nicely into that next line there that, you know, it says it damns and brings eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism and the Holy Spirit, and it cites John 3, verse 5 there. I think that brings us again, as you said earlier, as Lutheran pastors, we always want to get back to Jesus and how he brings us back into step, and I think that's outlined here in this statement, right? Yes, absolutely. So John 3, verse 5, in case you don't have your Bible in front of you at home, says Jesus answered, of course, he's talking to Nicodemus, uh, Nick at night, right? He's talking to Nicodemus who snuck out to hear more about this Jesus, Nicodemus is a leader among the Jews. And so Jesus responds back and he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay. So, I mean, this text, it brings out the fact that being born anew, being born again, or, or perhaps even a better translation, being born from above is absolutely essential right? There is no salvation apart from this rebirth, this new birth, because what happened in the sin of Adam and Eve is that they marred the image of God that was upon us to the point that we are unrecognizable as image bearers of God. We no longer have that loving dominion over creation where Adam and Eve, you remember in the garden, they were called to work and to tend and to care, to steward the Garden of Eden. Well, now we're broken and we're in rebellion against God and 
creation is in rebellion against us and it, it, we rage back and forth and there's just no peace whatsoever. And so it's blunt, but when it says it damns and brings eternal death, that's absolutely what it means, right? Which I'm sure there's at least one of our listeners who's hearing this and says, well, again, how is that fair uh, if you're talking about original sin and you're saying that original sin, that is not even doing anything wrong, has the capability to damn and to bring eternal death to those who are not born anew through baptism. So what are you saying about people always bring up the example of somebody who's living in deepest, darkest Africa and hasn't heard the gospel? Uh, people are always bringing up, you know, what about the child who is born and is not brought to the waters of holy baptism, right? I mean, these are these are serious questions, and, and I think the best that we can do is we can say this is why it is so vitally important for us as the church to teach people, to witness to people, to evangelize people. And when we have that next door neighbor that has you know a newborn baby and they're not a part of the church, to sit down and have those hard conversations. I know in some ways it's easier for a pastor to have these conversations. People always expect us to have the churchy conversations, but it's also in some ways it's harder because, you know, you just got to know your neighbors. You just got on friendly terms with them. And now you're about to, you know, knock on their door to tell them that their newborn baby is a sinner. Well, maybe don't present it in that way. But when we get together with these folks, we need to describe to people the fact that there is something that you can give to this child. And it's a it's a gift that, hey, you know, it's going to be something they can grow into at a later age. And for right now, it's a promise that God wishes to make for this child. You know, it, I mean, they, what you're doing right there is you're delivering the gospel to the family, to the parents with the hopes that they would, in the best interest of their child, likewise, bring that gospel to them. Uh, and by the way, the same goes with deepest, darkest Africa and everything else. Some will go, right? Some will go and will go over and will become missionaries and things of that nature. Those of us that have not been called to the mission field, we look for opportunities to support that, whether it be through financial gifts or at least through our prayers, right? Um, we encourage here at Holy Cross, we encourage folks each and every week. We have a, a little uh, sheet that we put out uh, that's a devotional guide for prayer. And we pray for a country around the world that is experiencing persecution. And we pray for an LCMS missionary who is deployed somewhere around the world with the hopes that, you know, through the prayers that we offer here, not only will we bring about awareness of what's going on, but also we pray that God would bless them and God would keep them. God would give them fruitful ministry in whatever corner of creation he has called them. So this is important, Article 2, because it brings into crystal clear focus the importance of what we are doing as the church, the importance of justification by grace through faith, because the alternative is damnation and eternal death. Okay? Absolutely. And well said there. And one point, you talked about the mission field. Mm -hmm. And I always like to make this point when it comes to that, that there's the foreign mission field, yes. but there is always that domestic mission field, right? You know, your first mission field, you and I are both fathers and husbands, right? Our first right. mission field is in our family to rightly teach this so that we have a clear understanding of that. And then that's the same thing that we pray for and support in the foreign mission field, which you laid out for us as well. It is really important for us to do. And I think that kind of is maybe not my best transition ever here, but I think <laughs> does also help us in the progression of the article here itself, as you set up for us in the context of what's going on with this article. You said there's kind of two tones going on. There's that conciliatory tone, you know, just demonstrating that the reformers aren't breaking with the faith that's always been confessed. What has been passed on from generation to generation, 
which is what we seek to do in our domestic mission field as fathers, husbands, right? It begins there. And we just simply confess the faith. And the Lutherans are certainly doing that. And that's what we've done here in the first paragraph of this article. And then the second paragraph transitions to that other tone that you talked about. And that's the polemical tone against the errors that are confessed here and bringing the truth of that. And I think before we actually even get into that second paragraph here, in terms of this article, where it says our churches condemn Pelagius and others who deny that original depravity, I think this is an important point to bring in here now, that part of that polemical tone, while we're confessing the faith to Roman theologians and the Holy Roman Emperor with the Augsburg Confession here, that we're also going to be pointing out more specifically in later articles than we are maybe here, but we are also confessing the faith to those who should have known and been faithfully confessing the faith, namely the Roman Catholic Church, right? And so I think it's important to bring here, how did the Romans respond to this in that confutation, that document that we've discussed previously, that Rome presents their response to this? And then how did the Lutherans respond to that? I think it's important to bring that in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I really appreciate that you brought it back to uh, the two different tones that we started off the conversation with, because this sure does, uh, if you know anything about the Pelagian heresy, Pelagius, he's this guy that lived in Europe in the fourth and fifth centuries, and he is condemned by the church. He's actually an opponent of Augustine, and he is condemned for denying that original sin existed. And then he taught that mankind had free will in terms of spiritual matters. This is a huge no-no, right? And the crazy thing is that, of course, you know, he is a Roman Catholic. uh, That's the church that existed in the fourth and fifth centuries. But so you have this guy who is condemned, and so the church is against him. And when the confutation starts out, they start out by approving the second article, and they give sort of lip service to the fact that you're absolutely right. We got to condemn Pelagius. That's what we've always done. But here's the thing. The Roman church of the Middle Ages and of the 16th century, when the Augsburg Confession was being written, they didn't really condemn Pelagius, at least not in practice. Okay. So from the confutation, it actually says that we approve the second article on original sin. And then about two or three lines later, They go in and they say that when the reformers write that original sin means being in a state without the fear of God and without the trust in God, they say, we absolutely disagree with that. And the reason is, they say, because the child lacks reason. So he or she is not capable of being held accountable for such a lack of faith and trust. So what they basically do is they say that they agree But then they go back and they try to, uh, what's the expression? They try to have their cake and then eat it too, right? Uh, So they come across, and this is the kind of amazing thing, and I know that, that you have likely noticed this as well, just like I have, is that oftentimes our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Roman Catholic Church wind up making the exact same arguments, theologically speaking, as our brothers and sisters in Christ in larger, you called it American evangelicalism, right? Uh, But they make the same kinds of points, right? And yeah, they, uh, the Roman Catholic Church gives lip service to original sin, but then they go back in and they say that um, original sin isn't really about being without the fear of God and without the trust in God. But instead, you know, it's just the fact that we're born in need of God. They would put it maybe that way. Okay. Which is a very similar thing to what, you know, our Baptist brothers and sisters might say 
is that, yeah, you know, I mean, we're born maybe as a little bit more of a blank slate. We're taught to sin a little bit later. And that's, you know, as soon as we have, here's the, here's the clincher for him. As soon as we gain that reason, as soon as we really understand it, then comes the time when, you know, we got to really start turning the screws and we got to really start talking about sin and, and grace and everything else. That just blew my mind whenever I read that. That's their response, right? And you can understand why it came down and became known as the confutation, because it's just so many arguments being made at once. They're confuted upon one another and they're just, it's circular reasoning. And it's just, yeah, we approve this, but also not, right? Uh, so what are the reformers supposed to do, right? So of course, when we draft the apology, it comes back, of course, in much more depth. Uh, there's a lot more going on in the apology. And I, I've got a couple of points in my notes about that, but really just the confutation, the way that they, yes, we agree with what you said, because it's the clear teaching that the church has always held, right? But also, no, we're not as hip on what you guys are talking about there in Germany. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting that you make the point there that Pelagius was condemned by the church, Augustine, who was very influential in his teachings and writings for Martin Luther, of course, as an Augustinian monk, right. right? So rightly condemned in the history of the church, but yet that teaching is still hanging around, and that's really what we're facing here. And I think it's interesting you connected it, especially again, to our American evangelical culture and context that we tend to find here, and, and especially that Baptist theology that pervades that and definitely present in the Baptist church where they have that, you know, they reach the age of reason. And I always wonder, you know, maybe you can comment on this if you want to. I always wonder, what, where is that age of reason? Because they actually place it a lot later. But, you know, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. <laughs> right. And my three-year-old definitely knows when he's being naughty, right? And so they also, you know, one of the other terms they use is the age of accountability then. You know, they're not accountable for it until they know that they're doing wrong. Right. And there's such an interesting thing, you know, when you talk with Baptists, and I don't know how many Baptists you have conversation with, but I think that, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I remember being in high school and, you know, arguing and debating with Baptists and having friendly discussions and things like that. And a lot of that, you know, uh, because the Baptist, especially the Southern Baptist Convention, I mean, they've got their, I guess they have sort of a written standard of this is their confession that they hold to, but it's almost kind of a swinging pendulum because you go between, and you may be able to help me out here, the general and the particular Baptists. You go between kind of the more Calvinist and then the more Arminian Baptists. They swing back and forth and it happens in their seminaries and then it kind of dilutes down into their preachers. But so Baptists are kind of, they're like, it's like nailing jello to the wall because, you know, as soon as you're like, ah, yes, this age of accountability, the last three or four Baptist pastors that I've really talked with about this, I mean, they're like, you know, we don't really talk about the age of accountability anymore. And I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? I thought that was like y'all's thing, right? You guys aren't doing what textbook Baptists do. Uh, but anyways, that's why it's good to have a, a common confession of the faith that we can subscribe to and say, I make these confessions my own because they are in, in accordance with the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful being a Lutheran? I just like it. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways. Well, and that's a great point to make there too, in terms of, I often talk about it in terms of a, a spectrum, right? And yeah, the spectrum is between, you know, do they side more with the Calvinist side or the Arminian side? Right. And it, it just, it is. And there's kind of everything in between. It does make it difficult. And yet we can point to specific things where essentially what it boils down to is what's said in that second paragraph there is the Pelagian error, right? Yes. Who deny that original depravity. 
that's essentially what you're doing. I mean, and again, I use my own children as an example. I look at them and, you know, I certainly didn't teach my three-year-old and one-year-old to be naughty, right? They just kind of figured that out all on their own. And so if there's any case for me that says, yes, they have original sin that manifests itself in specific sins, like that this is a part of their nature, their original depravity in sin, right? To me, that always kind of makes the case then, right? And that's what Rome is also effectively not confessing faithfully as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, you hit the nail on the head, but back up just a couple of lines when we talk about concupiscence, that inclination to sin, that is truly sin. The inclination is truly sin, okay? So it's not just, you know, that the child has that inclination and then they, you know, when they do the thing, okay, there's sin, but it's, you know, it counts that you are born in that wrong relationship towards God. It counts that you are born a sinner, okay? And that's, those are categories that we got to think in, is that people are either born righteous or born sinner. There's not really an in-between. And that's one of the points that they come back and make in the apology. Melanchthon makes that point. He says, a person's origin, right, at birth the options before us are righteous or sinner. There's not a middle ground. And so to put it another way, the lack of original righteousness, which was lost in the fall, is the historic definition of original sin. Okay. You just, you can't get around it. That's, that's the way that the church has always talked about this until the middle ages when the scholastics came about and they started mingling philosophy and adding reason into the equation. I mean, you heard that in the confutation, right? The child lacks reason. So he's not held accountable for such a lack of faith and trust. I, I didn't realize that the Catholics were the ones that came up with the age of accountability, but apparently it's buried right there in the confutation, which I don't think they really trumpet the confutation too much because they realized that it wasn't their best moment in print. Nevertheless, that's the problem that comes up in the Middle Ages is that you start to mingle in philosophy. You start to add reason into the conversation, and then you you sort of soften original sin, and it departs from this historic understanding of just how bad the problem is. And that is a problem, because the less of a sinner that you are, the less incredible it is what Jesus has done, okay? To cheapen sin is to cheapen salvation. The two go hand in hand together. Uh, so this is a direct quote from the Apology, Article 2, uh, and then they've got paragraph 33, I think is what I've got written here. It says, but the knowledge of original sin is necessary for the magnitude of the grace of Christ cannot be understood. No one can heartily long and have a desire for Christ for the inexpressible great treasure of the divine favor and grace, which the gospel offers. The magnitude of the grace of Christ cannot be understood unless our diseases be recognized. So if you don't know that you have a problem, if you don't know that you are broken, if you don't know that you are sinful through and through, if you think that you're just a kind of a blank slate and sometimes I do bad things, well, then do you even want Jesus to be your savior from all sin? Or do you just need a little bit of help from Jesus? And this goes back into a more in-depth conversation to semi-Pelagianism, uh, where we're down but not out. We still got a little bit of spark of the divine in us. And as long as we can make that choice, then God will do the rest, right? And that is just, it's so contrary to what the Word of God clearly teaches. That's why it's so important. This article is right up at the front of the confession that we go ahead and lay all of our cards down on the table and say, listen, we are sinful through and through. That's why it's so great that we have a Savior who is 
so willing, ready, and able that he has saved us. That's an excellent gospel focus there. As we have just a couple minutes here, you've talked about, and we've sort of alluded to, I might say, this idea of the free will, you know, that's connected with what's going on with the age of accountability or when we can reason and understand that we're accountable for our sin and those sorts of things. And so we're going to see that come up again in Article 18 on free will. And of course, you talked about, you know, the bound will and the great work of Martin Luther, the bondage of the will. And so we're going to be revisiting this idea a little bit more in depth as the Augsburg Confession continues. But with just a couple minutes here, go ahead and give us a setup here. You gave us at the beginning the context and how we got to this article as we're still early on here. But how does this article then set up what comes next in the Augsburg Confession? Sure, yeah. So I think that, as I mentioned right at the onset of the program, the fact that the Augsburg Confession, it almost sort of has a narrative quality to it, right? So you look at the first article, and we're going to talk about God, right? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in the beginning of our confession, it shouldn't start with us. It should start with God, right? And that's exactly where it does. And then it moves into, well, into this other category. And I would lump in not just us with original sin, but the fact that all of creation ever since the fall, has been in a broken, fractured relationship towards mankind and the image of God, and also towards God. It's, you know, rebelling out against God and against his will and his purposes. But then we get into the beautiful Article 3 that you're going to discuss next time, where you talk about Jesus. He's the one that stands in between. He's the one that fills the breach between God and between man, and he is the one who reconciles God to man. He does that through the fourth article that deals with justification by grace through faith. And then finally, he delivers this justification, not on the cross, not in the empty tomb, but through the ministry of his church. And so I like to think of it like this. The second article of the Augsburg Confession is sort of the background of everything else that's going to happen. Everything else that's going to happen, Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus dying on the cross, everything that's going to happen from here on happens with this as the background of the image. This is what's going on behind all of those other things that are so important is that we are in need of such a Savior. That's what it means to have original sin is that we need a Savior. We need someone to come and to rescue us from our own mess because we can't rescue ourselves. And it's not just a problem of not having righteousness. It's not just a problem of not having faith. It's a problem that we are dead inside. We're born dead, and we need Jesus to revive us, to bring us back to life, to speak us to life. And that's exactly what he does through his gospel, through his life, death, and resurrection. And that's why it's so important for us to understand. You don't know how good the solution is until you know how bad the problem is. Article 2, the Augsburg Confession, Original Sin. Absolutely. That is well confessed by our guest today, Pastor Dustin Beck, who is the pastor of Holy Cross in Warda, Texas. And thank you for coming on today and teaching for us this Lutheran confession, our Lutheran confession on original sin from the Article 2 of the Augsburg Confession. As you set up there for us next week, we will look at Article 3 on the Son of God. Thanks for joining us again here and being back on Concord Matters today, Pastor Beck. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.